are listening to Speech Bubble, the podcast that goes one-on-one with Toronto's comic book luminaries. Here's your host, Aaron Broverman. Godspeed, old chum. Hello, fanboys and fangirls. Welcome to another episode of Speech Bubble. It's your host, Aaron Broverman. And it's a big day at the Never Sleeps Network Studios today because with me today, we have someone responsible for much of the connective tissue in terms of the popularization of modern fandom in Canada. His name is Mark Asquith. He managed the Silver Snail in the 80s. He helped a filmmaker called Ron Mann do a documentary known as Comic Book Confidential, which is a seminal documentary if you're into comics or need an introduction. He also was behind Prisoners of Gravity, which was a show on TVO in the 80s, which explored a lot of uh, genre fiction, a lot of uh, fandom and fan culture. Now he's the producer for special projects at the Space Network, and uh, he's involved with Inner Space, if you watch that show. So I'm very happy to have him here. He has a lot of great stories about fandom in Toronto and uh, is responsible for fandom being popularized across Canada, I would I would argue. I wouldn't argue that, but thanks very much <laughs> for having me and for the very kind introduction. Awesome. You're welcome, Mark. I'm so honored to have you. I know kind of what you do and where your career has gone, but I, I don't I'm really know. I'm glad you do, because I don't. So there you go. <laughs> exactly. I've been following it for a while. So I just kind of uh, want to get to know you as a person. Where did you grow up? How did you get into comics and and pop culture that we love so much? Well, I I was a military brat, so I moved around, and uh, my family ended up in Ottawa when I was about six. And when I was about four, I got a copy of uh, Tantan, Explorers on the Moon, and, and that changed my life. I just thought that was the greatest comic book ever. Pretty early on, I would say I was about eight, I, uh, some of my friends were into comics, and I read them. And somebody left a stash of comics, and I, I read them. And I have to say, I, I was not impressed. Much as I loved Tanta and Asterix, I did not fall in love with North American comics. So I pretty much stayed out of them until I was about 17 or 18. And then I discovered them again, and uh, and the rest is history. <laughs> then I became obsessed by comics. So what were you not impressed by initially, and what brought you back into comics when you were 18? Uh, that's a really good question. I, I think the stories were bland. They all seemed to seem, they looked the same to me. I didn't like the format of the floppy comic. I really liked the North, the um, European graphic albums. They were hard. They felt good in my hands. They were, you know, you could read them again and again and again, where North American comics at that time anyway, just seemed very flimsy. You know, the stories didn't seem to be very imaginative. They didn't seem to be very well drawn. It's since been pointed out to me that I was probably reading the wrong ones. But what brought me back was that I had a friend uh, called Peter. He had the tiny perfect collection. And one day I was, com- you know, basically complaining about North American comics. And he said, well, here's some to read. And in that afternoon, I read uh, Will Eisner's The Spirit, some Jim Steranko, some Barry Windsor Smith, Bernie Wrightson, stuff like that. And that 
completely turned me around. Wow. Particularly the Jim Steranko and Neil Adams stuff just completely blew me away. That's awesome. So like the Nick Fury, Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. type stuff? Or? Yeah, starting with Strange Tales. My friend had all of the everything Steranko did, starting with when he inked Jack Kirby. And of course, I didn't find out until I got into a little bit later that Steranko had done some other work, like on the fly and various other things. But I think my first exposure to Jim Steranko was uh, that Strange Tales, Nick Fury stuff, which was great. And then all, of course, he had all of the shields as well. And then he said, oh, well, if you like him, then you should be looking at the X-Men and you should be looking at this and that. And I wasn't used to really that as an idea because, of course, Hergé, my great saint Hergé, he did Tata and that's what he did. Right. And that's what I knew him as and that's what I bought. So the idea that other people, you know, that Steranko would work on things like Captain America and Tower of Shadows, that kind of blew my mind. It was like, <laughs> oh, they jump around in North America. Cool, cool. So then when you were 18, how did fandom continue? Like, did you go to conventions? What was the scene like when, when you were growing up? Well, from my point of view, there was no scene. I mean, I, as I say, I lived in Ottawa, so my exposure to comics was minimal. I mean, go to the corner store, you know, or, or fandom was, you know, in my friend's uh, room. But what ended up happening is that I moved to Toronto uh, in the fall uh, when I was 18, and Toronto, of course, had Baca, and Baca in the closet had what became the Silver Snail, a, a very small collection of comics, but they got them every month. And I started going about once a month, then I got hooked, and I started going every week. But I wouldn't say that I was involved in fandom at all, because there was me, and there was Baca. There wasn't kind of an extended group of people. Hmm. And for me, fandom didn't really start. I went to one convention that had uh, Marshall Rogers, but it was just, you know, a day thing, at, at like a holiday inn. But the first show I really went to is MapleCon 3, and that show changed my life. That show literally changed my life. It was in Ottawa, but I was living in Toronto. I had a girlfriend who lived in Ottawa, and I thought, hey, this is great. I can go to this show, but really it's an excuse to see my girlfriend. And at that show, I met Elizabeth Holden, who was a letter writer and wrote a lot of brilliant letters, a young kid called Sven Larsen, who later ended up working for Marvel Comics, and some young guy called Frank Miller. And uh, Frank and I really connected, as did Elizabeth Sven and I. So the four of us spent a lot of time together, and that was really cool. And for the first time at that convention, I met probably 50 or 60 people uh, both in the industry and kind of important fans. And uh, people like Gene Day and Dave Sim and Denny LeBaire and the list goes on. I couldn't believe it. I, suddenly there was a community that I knew nothing about. And over the course of a weekend, I discovered my tribe. So I, I just can't overestimate what happened to me. That It changed my life. And that was also really where I got to know Ron Van Leeuwen and his girlfriend, Uli, who were at the show, but they were the Silver Snail. But they had a table at this convention. And uh, she was pregnant. So I said, okay, well, let me, you know, go and get you pizza. And uh, so I went and did that. And they said, oh, well, you know, we should buy you pizza or we should do something. And I was like, no, no, no. And I think that really intrigued them. So we started talking and we became friends. And because, of course, I lived in Toronto and the snail was in Toronto, eventually that relationship uh, deepened and developed. 
as did with the group of people who hung around the Silver Snail, people like Tom Stormont and a guy called Doug Campbell. And uh, so we started meeting after every new comic book day and uh, having a beer. And that, that's my fandom. Wow. <laughs> it's kind of, it isn't really fandom. It was just, to me, it was a group of guys. But fandom was MapleCon 3, and as I say, that blew my mind. So what were people like Frank Miller like before they were like the Frank Miller that we all know? I don't know what Frank Miller you know. I just know the Frank Miller that I know. Mm. Uh, he was a really lanky kid. He was uh, a little bit younger than me. He was really into Bruce Springsteen. He was really into comics. He was really into American history. And he was really intense. And I think that's why we really connected. And he just had a sticky mind. So he, he'd read a lot. He was very literate. And uh, we both were in love with a show called Hill Street Blues. And as I say, he, he wasn't a brand name yet. He hadn't become, you know, Frank Miller, nor had really Elizabeth Holden become Elizabeth Holden. And I was just a guy who at the time was, you know, going to university. So, yeah, to kind of look at these people and say, oh, well, you know, they're going to become, you know, they're, they're going to have careers, that would have seemed a little uh, uh, ludicrous at the time. Right, right. So... When you were, like, involved with the group that started, like, the Silver Snail, how did you go from, like, being friends with them and hanging out there to managing it? Well, first my heart got broken, and I decided that I would go to Europe, and that meant that I had is to quit my job. Is this the same girlfriend? No, is it, the, uh, oh, it, well, uh, kind of. Okay, okay. <laughs> As they say on Facebook, it's complicated. What ended up happening is that after university, I ended up working for Coach House, which is a small Canadian press. They published Margaret, Margaret Atwood, Michael Undace, Christopher Dudney, and uh, I loved working there. I loved it, but it got too tied up for me with what was going on in my personal life, and I just needed a break. So I went away to Europe, and I came back, and I decided that I would jettison a lot of my friends, and I would jettison a lot of my rhythms and my patterns, and it, it included Coach House, which I loved. I loved Coach House, and one of the, my great friends at Coach House was a guy called B.P. Nickel, and that name might be familiar to you because he also He's, worked on Comic Book Confidential with Ron Mann. Right, and it's it's the lane that the, the coach is now on, right? That's right, BP Nickel Lane. And, and, and that's important because knowing BP is odd because that kind of changes my life. First of all, right. he said, because I was a designer there and I was doing a bunch of stuff, and BP said, you know, you're probably going to, you know, you're one of the... 20 best designers in Canada, but would you rather be that or the best in the world at something? And mm -hmm. I said, well, the best in the world. He said, well, you should go into comics because I've never met anybody as passionate as you about comics. And Ron Mann was making a movie about Coach House and, and about poetry. Poetry in Motion was the name of the film. And then he later made a film about Coach House. But when he was working on that, of course, he was working with BP. And then it was sort of suggested that BP or BP kind of suggested that I get in touch with Ron and, and we start working on a film about comics. And I was greatly interested in working with Ron Mann. I'm kind of jumping you know, around and mangling the story. Yeah, that's but, but my life doesn't really work in a linear way in that way. But really, BP kind of connected us, and Ron and I have a great interest in ephemeral culture and popular culture. And 
he wanted to make a movie about Marvel. And in the course of a weekend, I said, no, you should make it about underground comics and comics as a medium. And you should explore people like Sue Co. And you should get people like Art Spiegelman and, you know, Robert yeah. Crumb and Love and Rockets guys. And like my brain just exploded yeah, with this Hernandez idea. the Brothers, like, absolutely yeah, totally. Cool. So... Is that how you got involved in helping him make the film? Like, he must have been really inspired by by your telling him, like, what was up. I, that was part of it. I think the work inspired him. I, I, I think it was just one of those magical things where I was passionate about something. I really liked him. He was passionate about telling these stories. And then he could have made a movie about any number of things. And, of course, he's gone on to make all kinds of wonderful movies, including Grass and The Twist. But at that time, I seemed to move that project to the front of the queue. Well, not just me, but BP Nickel. Uh, but to take it back a step, so I went to Europe and I came back and I decided, look, I, I, I need a job. And so I worked in the warehouse for Andromeda, which was a company that Ron Van Leeuwen, who owned the Silver Snail, also owned this distribute comic book distribution company. And very quickly, when they realized that I wasn't going back to Coach House. They said, oh, maybe you'd like to manage the Silver Snail. And I thought, okay, that sounds fine. And uh, I started working there and and it wasn't, the job wasn't very clearly defined. Uh, I was a manager, but I didn't really know what that meant. Ordering comics, you know, they just would say, we'll get a box of X-Men. And, you know, so I decided, okay, my first and foremost, having come from printing, you monitor everything very, very quickly. So the first thing I did was change the way the comics were displayed that came out every week. And then I monitored the comics as they came out and I could adjust my ordering. So about a year and a half later, the store was really going strong. We had a about a 1% return rate because, as you know, at that time, or even now, comics are non-returnable. So I was really right. focused on making a lot of money and not having a lot of extra comics. So that was a lot of fun for me. Uh, and because I'm a bit of a number nerd, it was really exciting to kind of order all these comics and then, you know, sell through. It was really exciting. I know that sounds weird. So but. so what did you change specifically that that led to that sort of that sort of boom? I don't know. I a part of it was just the mechanics of running a store, how you rack comics, which now everybody does mm-hmm. uh, kind of in the same way. But uh, then it was comics would come out and each week would have its own kind of strip. And I decided that that wasn't a great idea. So that all the Batman comics would be all with, you know, Batman under B. Everything would be alphabetical. And I decided that the store should be designed for newbies and not for people who knew about comics. That the only way that comics were going to grow as a medium was if anybody could walk into that store and very quickly figure out how the store worked. The other thing that was happening is that when I got to that store, it was the third incarnation of the Silver Snail. It had been on Queen Street at two previous locations. But but Ron you know, already had a very clear uh, design aesthetic about the store. He already knew that he wanted a mainstream audience. So he and I were a perfect fit in that way because we both wanted comics to be respected. So the, it was beautifully – I mean, I don't know if you were at the 367 Queen Street store – but it was very different than any other store in the early 80s because we had wood, we had women at the cashier. It was a very fi- family-friendly store. It was a very different vibe from any store I'd ever been to. Mm-hmm. So 
I came to Toronto from Vancouver. I guess the, my first exposure to the Silver Snail in person, which I didn't see like on TV in many of your interviews, like the background and some of the interviews that you that you did, uh, was the final location on Queen Street with the mural and and that and that kind of thing before it moved to uh, Young and Dundas Square. So just to give you a little bit of background, on no, me, no, perfect. But I wanted to sort of get into what BACA was and how that turned into the Silver Snail, because I don't think much of our audience knows what what that is. Well, it was kind of strange. There had been a big convention in Toronto, and I think that uh, a guy called Charlie McKee had the brilliant idea to have a bookstore dedicated to science fiction. First, the name BACA, you know, Dune fans and science fiction fans will know what that comes from. And I don't know that they knew that it would be a success. So they hedged their bets and they brought in this guy called Ron Van Leeuwen and he sold comics quite literally in a closet at the back of the store. And after a year or two, it became clear it wasn't going to work. And so they had made a deal with Ron and they said, okay, you go away for a year. And he went to Ottawa Mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, build up your back stock and then open a store. So in May of 1976... Ron opened up the Silver Snail on Queen Street, basically where Black Market is now. And uh, it was a revelation. That store was amazing. I think it was about 600 square feet, but it felt like Mecca. It was really terrific. The following year was, of course, 1977, the year of Star Wars. And that just blew the lid off popular culture in many ways. All of that, those kind of popular culture ideas, which had been brewing but hadn't really coalesced, in 77, when Star Trek, oh, sorry, Star Wars came out, that really changed the scene, that changed the people who shopped at the store. The store also began to get more into toys because they would bring in, you know, Boba Fett's and Darth Vader's and that kind of stuff. So things were beginning to shift and change uh, in the early, well, mid to late 70s. Cool. So when you managed the Silver Snail, I know that you brought in a lot of... Uh, comic book people who like most people would recognize how did you make connections for for in-store signings and and those sorts of things that's complicated but simple on one level there was a lot of local talent so people like dave ross and uh you know artists who were doing stuff in toronto that was relatively straightforward there was dave sim was in kitchener and he was a very big draw in the early 80s because of cerebus Cerebus. But the really big one, probably the big first one, was in 1983. Uh, I contacted Marvel. I, I suddenly had this idea because the X-Men was doing so well for us. And I said, look, you know, I, I would like to have Paul Smith, an artist on the X-Men, come up. And they, we went back and forth and they said, okay. And one of the questions that they asked me was, well, how many X-Men do you sell a month? And I, I you know, I think it was actually, how many X-Men do you order a month? And I said, uh, 2,000. And there was sort of silence on the phone. And they said, okay, we'll get you Paul Smith. Nice. And then Paul Smith came up, and he had a great time. And I we really connected. He was a great guy. And he's into animation, and I'm into animation. And he said, look, you know, you, you need to develop your relationship with Marvel. You know, I know that you can call people up, and they would love this store. So that's what I did. And I would call up Marvel and I would say, hey, um, I see you've got something called, you know, I mean, whatever the project was. 
and I'd see a name and I'd say, hey, I'm interested in bringing up um, Bill Sinkovich. And they go, oh, Bill Sinkovich, Bill Sinkovich. Yeah, Bill's doing uh, Moon Knight. You should, you know, that'd be great. And uh, so I would bring up people through Marvel and through DC, mostly through Marvel because they had, uh, you know, they would help pay for the advertising and they were very on board. Right. There was a woman there called Carol Kalish who really understood the direct market. And so she understood what we were trying to do. And I would put ads in newspapers. They would reimburse me for that. And it was building the branding of the Silver Snail and Marvel and comics. So it was a win-win-win for everybody. And it was a win for the fans. Because then as the guest appearance program became more and more formalized, I started doing one a month. And once you get to that level, you start to realize how to do it. So you would put out a flyer. When you had, you know, when John Ramita Jr. or sorry, John Ramita Sr. was in the store, you'd have the flyer for the next guy. Yeah. And then uh, what I tended to do is get a big name, so a Mark Silvestri or a Chris Claremont or someone like that. And then the next month followed up with somebody who is smaller or somebody who is indie and not as well known. Maybe someone like Kevin Nolan, you know, and then, of course, Kevin's gone on to become (laughs) a bigger thing. But that was sort of the rhythm of how it would work. And then... Because we were moving so many comics, almost everybody wanted to come to the store, and we got a great reputation. The biggest thing for me was in the mid-'80s, I went to New York, and uh, Paul Smith and a bunch of people said, oh, you've – and Charles Vess, actually, said, oh, you need to come and have dinner with us, and we'll introduce you to all the comic book people. And that was amazing. And then they met me, and uh, they knew that I loved comics, and then almost every month we could get somebody interesting, which was great. But I do, I want to tell you one funny story, because sure. it, it sounds like this is very corporate, and, you know, I'd be interested in a book, and i get Charles Vess. So yeah. I got Charles, and, and he came up to the store, and he had a great time, and he went back. And every time I called him at home, this other person would answer. And one day Charles said, hey, are you a big Mike Kaluta fan? And I went, oh, my God, Mike Kaluta changed my life. One panel in Korak, Carson of Venus. Man, that, it blew my mind, and probably that's why I, I do this now. And he goes, oh, just a minute, Mike. And, of course, his roommate was Mike Kaluta, <laughs> a guy I've been talking to for months. Wow. And Mike thought this was funny. And so Mike came up to promote Starstruck. And then, you know, so these things were more organic than it sounds. Right. And then another one, I was in Chicago. I was at a convention and I met uh, Mobius. And the people at Marvel knew that I was a big fan of European comics and they knew that I would really be behind the Mobius book. So they said, well, let's do a signing. So we ended up having two Mobius signings at the Silver Snail. So that's epic. That was great. And, you know, we could die. I could do an hour on Mobius stories. <laughs> <laughs> totally, totally. So when you were working with Ron Mann on his uh, documentary, Combo Confidential, you were also managing the store. Was that? No, I wasn't. No, no. no. The the it was kind of a bit of an overlap. Okay, because Ron started researching it in in eighty five. Okay, and then doing it. In, I think he went to San Diego in eighty six, and I went there in eighty six, and then the it started to ramp up in eighty seven, which is when I left the snail. Yeah, and so it some of there was a little bit of overlap there, but not a lot. Was his project how you got into broadcasting? Well, I'm not sure. In 1986, um, 
Mao's Dark Knight and Watchmen happened. And I ended up doing a lot of promotion and a lot of radio and television interviews. And I ended up doing stuff on Morningside with Peter Zofsky and other hosts. And I ended up doing a lot of local coverage. And when we would do the big signing, sometimes that would attract people who would come down and they would interview me. And one of the people in 1986 who interviewed me was uh, Daniel Richler. And uh, he finished the interview and he said, man, this is great. And I said, thank you. And he said, um, you know, could you help me out? Do you think we could get an interview with John Byrne? Do you think we could get an interview with Art Spiegelman or Frank Miller? And he named all the people that he wanted. I said, sure, I'll call him up and I'll see if we can get him. So I did that, and he went to New York, and he went to various places, and he interviewed these people, and then he came back, and he said, hey, would you like to come into the studio and watch me edit it? I went, sure, I'm no fool. So I went, and I'm a very hands-on guy, and I knew the material. So I would say, no, no, don't do that, do this, do this. And at the end of it, Daniel said, you're a natural producer. If you ever want a job, just, you know, use me as a reference. That would be awesome. And I said, well, you know, I have a job and I have a job that I love. And uh, so thanks, but uh, but no. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, he said, no, no, no. But I said, you know, if you ever are in the position to greenlight something on comics, then I'll do it. I didn't want to leave and become a quote unquote producer. I wanted to do something that had to do with comics. So... In 1989, he called me up and he said, look, I'm now the creative head of arts at TVO and uh, I would like you to pitch me. So I pitched him a show. Uh, It was essentially a six-minute filler between two episodes of Doctor Who. And um, it was going to be about comics and what comics were coming out each week. And then they lost Doctor Who. And I immediately said, let's do a half-hour show and we will make it theme-based. And, you know, all the stuff that you see on Prisoners of Gravity now, that was essentially in my original pitch. It's oh, like, okay. this is what I want to do. And I knew that if I did it theme-based, that I could recycle interviews. So that if I got one interview with Frank Miller, I could use it in 20 different episodes. Wow. So I was thinking that way because I thought there won't be a budget. And, you know, it'll be very hard. But I also knew that the, I could get the Silver Snail to bring up people to the store, and then I could interview them if they came up to the store. Mm-hmm. So it was this weird kind of approach to television where I knew that because everybody in, in the comic book scene and science fiction scene knew who I was, that they would let me have access to guests, and I could often help them. I'd say, hey, I know Mobius, so I'll get Mobius to come to the Silver Snail, or I know Neil Gaiman, and we'll work something out. And so that worked out very, very well for everybody. Wow. So how did you meet, like, Neil Gaiman and Alan Moore? And, like, how, how did that end up happening? Because I, I know that there's sort of there's sort of a famous story between between you meeting Alan, getting introduced by, by Neil and that sort of thing. Well, again, these things are really organic. So I, how I think I met Neil Gaiman was that I met Neil Gaiman uh, literally on the streets of Gotham City on the set of the first Tim Burton Batman movie. And I was there promoting, I was in England at uh, the United Kingdom Comic Art Convention promoting The Prisoner, which is a graphic novel that I did with Dean Motter. And I met this guy. What I didn't know was that Neil knew who I was because when I was at the Silver Snail, I championed a book called Violent Cases. And we ended up selling 127 copies of Violent Cases, which I didn't know at the time 
was more copies than Diamond and Capital, the two major distributors in North America, combined. Wow. So I ordered 50, and we and because the Silver Snail customers were so literate and Toronto customers are so passionate, we sold out of 50. I ordered 50 more. We were just about to sell out, and I ordered 50 more. And Titan Books sent me a box, and Mike Lake and Nick Lando wrote me this note. They were the guys who did Titan Books, and they said, oh, we're so sorry, but um, we've sold out. And the books were kind of scuffed, too. Some of them were not in mint condition. Mm-hmm. But when I opened them up, they were all signed by Neil Gaiman and Dave McKean, wow. the writer and artist of the book. So I called up Mike, and originally I was going to try to, you know, I was going to say, hey, dude, I ordered 50 and I got 27. And he said, actually, those are the last 27 copies in the warehouse. And uh, when Neil and Dave found out how many that you'd ordered, uh, they wanted to sign the copies. So I put the signed copies up and put a sign saying, hey, if you already bought one of these, you can exchange it. No, you know, no extra money, whatever. Just wow. come in and exchange. Only one person did, which was interesting, uh, <laughs> which was really weird. Yeah. And most people bought the signed one. They all, they had already bought the unsigned one. Yeah. And they had some sort of relationship with that copy. So then they bought the signed wow. one as well, which was, that was mind-blowing to me. I didn't realize people would be like that. Yeah. But but there you go. That's fandom. Yeah. Uh, so Neil knew who I was. So when we met, you know, I think he was suitably, you know, it's like, oh, this guy really loves my work. And then very early on, I, I was staying with Dave McKean. So I saw the cover of the first uh, Sandman, and he said, this is the book I'm working on with Neil. And then around issue, I think it was issue nine, I called Neil and I said, I love what you're doing with Sandman. Issues eight and nine are brilliant. And uh, then he started sending me the scripts to Sandman. So that was really fun well, and cool. seeing how he was developing. And we just became friends. I, I don't know that there was anything, you know, it was just, yeah, we were both interested in books, we're both interested in fantasy I think we both felt like outsiders, but we were in the industry, which was kind of weird. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's how that happened. And then, of course, Sandman becomes Sandman. And then How I Met Alan Moore is a bit weirder because I was a huge fan of a Warrior magazine, a black and white British magazine that had two strips in it written by Alan Moore. One was called V for Vendetta, which I still think is one of the greatest graphic novels ever done. It's fantastic. And Mir- Marvel Man or Marvel Miracle Man. Marvel Man is my favorite superhero comic of all time. Well, there you go. So imagine this guy did both in that book, yeah. right? So you're getting Warrior Magazine, and I was, uh, whoa. And then when I was at MapleCon, I think five, Dick Giordano was there, and he was meeting Dan Day, and he said, oh, he's, you know, the comic that he's going to be working on is Swamp Thing 20, and it's written by Alan Moore. And he had a copy of the script there that he was going to give to Dan Day. (laughs) So I read it, and I thought it was okay. I thought 20 was okay. I didn't think it was great. But I thought, wow, this is really cool. I like the way Alan wrote the story. And how weird is it to sit in a bar and read Swamp Thing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, You know, the script to Swamp Thing. And then issue 21 came out, uh, The Anatomy Lesson, with art by John Tod- well, Steve Bissett and John Toddleman. And I, that comic blew the top of my head off. And so that was great. And I became friends with John Toddleman and then later Steve Bissett. And then Steve is actually the one who introduced me to Alan Moore. Again, because of the way the weirdness works, okay. I knew that Alan was going to work on a 
comic book or graphic novel called Big Numbers, which is about chaos theory, which was something that I was passionate about. And I had interviewed James Gleek and I had all kinds of articles about chaos theory. So I ended up shipping all that stuff off to Alan Moore. And that's why he thanks me in uh, Big Numbers number one, wow. which is kind of weird. And Big Numbers is like the long lost project that was never really completed, right? That is true. Yeah. Okay. That is true. And But then how I met Alan Moore was that we, we set up that he would do an interview for this third season of Prisoners of Gravity. Uh, Steve Bissett really acted as the go-between. And uh, it was on a Wednesday, and I met him for lunch. I thought, well, I'll buy Steve and Alan lunch. And, of course, Alan's a vegetarian, and I'm not. But we had lunch, which was cool. And Neil Gaiman had described Alan to me as a cross between Charles Manson and a Yeti. And he was right. (laughs) And another mutual friend of ours said, well, you know, Alan's like you a lot, but he's 60 IQ points smarter. (laughs) And that was true, too. Uh, So Alan was a delight and a wonderful storyteller. And uh, so we had lunch and then we went and did the interview. And at the beginning of this process, because I interviewed for roughly seven days and I would do a lot of interviews, the first day... Most of them were half an hour. And so I would do a half hour interview and then another one and then another one. And then, but on the Wednesday, I did an interview with John Brunner that lasted an hour. But this Wednesday, I'd carved out two and a half hours for Alan. And I remember the cameraman and the sound guy saying, is this a typo? This is two and a half hours with one guy. I said, yeah, and it's not enough. Like we're going (laughs) to run out of time. And uh, so Alan came in and we did the first half an hour and it was all on uh, V for Vendetta and politics and anarchy. And he got up because the tape will only hold roughly 24, 25 minutes. So he got up and we switched the tape. And then I was able to talk to the sound guy and to the cameraman and make sure that everything was okay. And they'd both interviewed the uh, Dalai Lama the week before. So they, you know, and they were BBC guys. And they said, oh, my God, I think that's the smartest guy we've ever met. This is the most incredible interview. Wow. I said, you know what? It's not even great yet. I said, in this next half hour, we're going to talk about metamorphosis and swamp thing. And that's really like, it's going to be great, which, and it was. And then I said, in in the, an hour, an hour, an hour in, on the third tape, we're going to start The Watchmen. And I said, you just wait, because that's going to be amazing. <laughs> that's awesome. And it was great. And the, the Watchman thing was so good that at the end of the interview, I realized, because I already had an interview with Dave Gibbons, who was the artist. I had an interview with Alan. And Greg Throwback, who, who worked with me, said, you know what? Like, let's not do a profile of Alan Moore. Let's just do a half hour on the Watchmen. And then the other material we're, we'll use, because it was all good. Yeah. Alan, there's not a wasted syllable. Right. Alan, everything that he said was great. So you can still probably find it online. There's a yeah, half TVO, hour Yeah, TVO, all the Prisoners of Gravity stuff, I think, is available on the TVO website. Oh, good. Well, so. that, that Watchmen, is, that's really worth mm-hmm. seeing. I mean, it's amazing. Alan's at the peak of his powers. He's wearing a T-shirt. I don't know if you can make it out, but it says, just say yo to drugs. <laughs> nice, nice. So with the Prisoners of Gravity thing, like, what was the concept? It was... When I watched some reruns of it, it was very much like, it looked like like cable access television, like the guy was sort of in his basement. It was sort of like mystery science theater sort of thing. What were you, what were you trying to do with that? 
Well, the idea was that you would have a host uh, who became Commander Rick. And the I, I liked the metaphor of a guy who wanted to escape Earth but crashed into a communications satellite. Mm-hmm. And the reason that I liked that was I find that a lot of people were, certainly in the, in the late 80s, people were talking about science fiction as, it, as if it were escapism. And that's not how I saw science fiction. I saw that science fiction was reflecting what was happening now, but using a mirror, a kind of funhouse mirror, distorting what was happening now and doing it in such a way that because it it had certain trappings of science fiction, you could get away with uh, political and social stuff that you might not be able to get away with in any other form. So uh, that's what I really wanted to talk about. And I wanted to talk about the themes of science fiction, fantasy, and the medium of comics. Because I always thought that comics were a medium and not a genre. Right, and which at is that true. period, Well, at that period, everybody thought they were superheroes. And I wanted to really break that down. I wanted to be able to talk about Sandman and Swamp Thing and horror comics and war comics. We did a whole episode on war and Archie Goodwin was in that and George Pratt. And just trying to hammer home the message that comics could do more than just, you know, men in spandex punching each other, you know, in the head. Right, right, exactly. And I mean, I think you were one of the first people to, to realize that and to, and to really do that. I mean, I was too young to watch Prisoners of Gravity when it was first on. But in the 90s, I watched a show called The Anti-Gravity Room. And when I went back to watch Prisoners of Gravity, I thought, did the Anti-Gravity Room steal the concept of Prisoners of Gravity? Because they, they were very similar in the way, you know, the name well, and, and not only the name, but the format as well. well. A, a kid in New York came up with the idea, and then when it came to Toronto to shoot, they asked me to write the pilot. So okay. if you see similarities, that's why. That's why? And and I gave them, you know, access to my Rolodex, and I really liked the team. And at that point, I was working on imprint and on various other things. So I wasn't working in television in genre capacity. And uh, so I thought, well, I'll help these guys out. And I they were a really lovely bunch of people. Mm-hmm. They were great. Phil Guerrero, I, I just think, is you know, a national treasure. He was the dude I grew up with. Yeah. Right? When I was a, when I was a kid, for sure. Yeah. Definitely. Oh no. It's, and you know, I have to say throughout my career, I've worked with wonderful hosts right now. It's Morgan, Teddy and AJ, mm-hmm. but all these people I've gotten to work with because I'm not comfortable, you know, being the face and being an on-camera host. I'd much rather write the questions and steer the conversation. And then, you know, my host's, can be charming and I can be the nerd. So with space and inner space, like that's sort of like the sort of the now version, I guess, of, of, pris- of Prisoners of Gravity. Well, How did different. that kind well, of start? It's strange because I kept approaching um, Moses Neimer because I wanted to do uh, what became Prisoners of Gravity. I wanted to do that show on his channels. I wanted it to be paired with the new music and mm-hmm. come after the new music. And this would have been 1987, 88, right after I left the Silver Snail. This is my big thing. I'll create this show. And, uh, you know, of course it will be with Moses Neimer. Of course it will be on City. And uh, I watched their stuff and I thought, boy, they get it. Like, these guys really get it. And um, he didn't get it. 
And uh, so that was too bad. But at one point, he decided he wanted to develop a show, uh, sorry, a, a channel. That channel, of course, was space, space. And I was consulting very, very early on on that. Yeah. Uh, as were a whole lot of other people, Joe O'Brien. There's a bunch of other people who were working on that. And then uh, they got the channel on August the 15th, 1997. And then I started talking to them. And in the fall, I started working with them, along with a producer called Dennis McGrath. And a very small team of us launched that channel. And um, Dennis left to write science fiction television. And uh, I stayed. And at the launch of space, like for those who don't know, or for those living in the US, it's like the sci-fi channel of Canada. Kind sort of, of yeah. thing, Sort of. What was the goal of the channel? Like, why did you want to launch it? What did you want it to be? Just an extension of genre. I mean, I, I wanted to celebrate science, science fiction, and, and imagination, sort of bridge science and imagination. And that was the first five or six years, really. So we were interviewing astronauts. We were talking about a lot about science, interviewing people like Stephen Hawking. It was a really interesting time. And then as the channel evolved and started defining itself and certain things happened in popular culture, the channel became more about science fiction. And, you know, we started getting shows like, say, you know, Battlestar Galactica. And really, if you're doing a show like Interspace, you're going to be very reactive to the channel's acquisitions. Con yeah, it's the so, content, yeah. Yeah, the content. So if we're getting Killjoys, if we're getting Dark Matter, if we're getting The Expanse, the Interspace will reflect that. Mm -hmm. And so that's what's ended up happening. Of course, I still get to do comics. I, I, I actually met you at TCAF. Right. And I must have gotten eight or nine, well, probably about 12 interviews that day. Mm -hmm. And probably eight or nine stories came out of that. So I always see you. We always bump into each other at conventions where you have the camera, right. and you know, you know, it's one of those things where you know you pass each other in the men's room or you do something, and it's sort of like the community is small where you run into the same people over and over and over again. And I think before TCAF, when I met you, I was sort of the guy who just said hi every <laughs> every so often. But then eventually, like, this happened because because well, you're here now. But the people who are covering the scene, whether or not they're photographers or whether or not they're interviewers, you, you do know who they are and mm. you do get to know them. And my, my focus has always, I've tried it to keep a bit broad. So I might run into Richard Krauss, who's really into film. I'm more into, you know, genre type film. So we'll meet in that way. But, you know, someone like Catherine Curtis, who does a lot of work covering genre stuff, of course, I'll run into her. Right. And then, of course, the other thing that happens is that we'll be interviewing the same people. So everybody, you know, maybe you or I will be interviewing, I don't know, Charles Burns or, right, right. or, or Robert J. Sawyer or Francis Manipal or, you know, Ken Lashley. Right. And because things are very, very fluid. And the other thing that happens, too, is that most comic book artists and most writers, they're working 10 to 12 hours a day. They don't have a social life. Right. So when it comes to a convention, or when it comes to a festival like TCAF, they're more than willing to talk. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, And yeah. so it may be really difficult for me to get Chip Zdarsky, mm -hmm. you know, just during the day because he's totally busy, but I can get him at TCAF. I, I know it's weird because he's local, but right. he's very hard to get. Yeah, yeah. Francis Manipal is the same way. Ken Lashley is yeah, the same Yeah, they're way. super, super busy. Like, that's... I know it's hard for people to realize, yeah, but yeah. they really work hard. And when you see them at a convention, that's them being able... That's the other part of their job, right. which is to represent their work in that way to the public. Right, right, exactly. So 
what do you think of working with the hosts that you work with now? Like, I know people that listen to this podcast have seen, you know, AJ Fry and, and Teddy and all those people. So how do you, how do you relate to them? I mean, they, they've told me some stories about you in terms of, you know, you're such a great mentor uh, for them. So what, what is your experience with them and working with them? Well, Somebody recently months called me an accidental mentor, and I never mean to be a mentor. I, that's, mm. I just, I do my job, I tell them what I want, and I try to explain to them what it is that I want. So I'll write the questions, but if I'm working with AJ, I'll give him the questions, and I'll, and I'll almost every time I do it, I say, please AJize them, which is shorthand for make them your own. Every host is different. Teddy's approach is very, very different from AJ's. Morgan's approach is very different. All three are very different. Mm -hmm. Every host I've worked with has been different. So the key is, and it's fun for me because I feel in some ways they make it fun because it was just me doing the interview. I mean, the last time Neil Gaiman was in town, I, I, he said, Oh, great. When am I going to come in? I said, well, great. I'll write the questions, but Morgan is going to do the interview. And what's fun about that is that she can ask questions that I can't in a way. Right. It's hard for me to say, so tell me about how you started Sandman because, you know, you know. through that I know. Well, not, it just feels canned. It yeah. just doesn't feel. And I don't, you know, I, I always want to be wary of the fact that, that it, I don't want my interviews to feel like inside baseball. Mm -hmm. I think it's boring for, well, Mark, remember uh, when we were having beers and we did this and that? Yeah. That's boring. And that doesn't work for television. Right. What works is, Oh my God, guess what? In studio, we have the creator of Sandman, American Gods, Nancy Boys, and a graveyard book. It's Neil Gaiman. And I can't do that. <laughs> like, I'm just not capable of it. So that's really fun. And I, they teach me so much. I mean, people always say, oh, you know, you've taught me so much. I'm like, like, they teach me. And uh, they keep it fresh. I, I, I would have left 10 years ago. Except that the hosts really kept me there. But, you know, really, when AJ and Teddy joined the team, that was very interesting because they were so different, but they were so passionate about genre. And before that, a lot of the hosts weren't. You know, mm -hmm. they would know something or some things uh, and have a narrow interest, but they didn't have a broad kind of overview. And Teddy is an interesting one because I turned him on to say American Splendor and Harvey Picar, and he went out and read all that stuff and he got into it more than I was into it. So at one point I just said to him, here's a stack of Harvey Picars. These are all the American Splendors. And he took them home and the next Monday he showed up and he goes, they're all signed. I went, yeah, I know. I was a bit of a nerd. I got him to sign them. He goes, no, no, but I can't have them. I said, no, no, they, they're not signed to me. They're just signed by Harvey Picar. Yeah. And uh, so he was like, really? I can have them? I'm like, no, no, no. You're a much bigger fan. Go and have these comics. So, you know, that's like Teddy is that way. He's very infectious. So you're kind of passing on your love and your passion to like the next generation. Like, how do you feel about your place in popularizing uh, like genre and this sort of I, this sort of thing. I think I'm an asterisk. I think I'm a footnote. I, I don't I'm not uh you know, I'm not Daniel Richler who started the you know, who basically was the executive producer who's better known. I don't know. I I'm just a guy who does what I do and I've done it for a long time. And if people think I did something or it changed, 
then great. But I, I don't really know. I, it's a bit like asking a fish about water. Right. I live in this water, so I can't tell you about the water. Right. I just know that, you know, people come into my orbit and I, if I love their work, often we end up connecting and then they go, wow, like Jeff Smith, I loved Bone. And after, you know, he was in an interview in TCAF a few years ago, and he was citing me as a major influence and in somebody who had really made him think about the work in a different way. I had no idea I was doing that. Right. None. Like zero. Uh, so do I have a sense of what I've... No. I just... I've been a cheerleader. I've been a guy who's held the spotlight for a few people. Probably the most dramatic thing for me where I realized, okay, maybe I am having an influence, was the Watchmen episode that we talked about earlier with Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons. I remember calling the Beguiling and the Silver Snail and said, okay, this week we're going to be doing the Watchmen, and so you should get extra copies in. Actually, I think I had a four-week window. I knew four weeks out when that was going to be. Mm -hmm. And the Silver Snail ordered 25 copies of Watchmen. And the day after the show aired, I was in the Snail picking up comics. I mean, I wasn't there for any other reason and to see the gang. And they went, and I noticed they were sold out of Watchmen. And they, actually, that's not true. They had two or three copies left, but somebody was looking at it, and they were looking at the issue five, the mirror, right. which, of course, was in the episode of Prisoners of Gravity, mm -hmm. and people were talking about it. And then the cashier and one of the managers, or the manager said, oh, my God, we can't keep it on the shelves. And I realized, oh, my God, I did that. But then I did that with violent cases when I was just managing the snail. Right. So my job is always, I think, to be a cheerleader and to hold a spotlight. I mean, it things. seems like your motivation is just your love and spreading the love of this sort of thing. To <laughs> I other, need the t-shirt. Spreading the love. <laughs> exactly. So final question. Sure. What do you think about where we are now, where we have, like, basically what was once niche culture is now popular culture? And where do you think we can go from here? Well, I always disputed that. I thought okay. that in 1977, when Star Wars happened, that really, that our kind of nerd culture had gone mainstream. I mean, Star Wars changed everything. But in many ways, I was wrong because we didn't have a TV show every week. We, and nowadays, we have a superhero show almost every day of the week. Right, right. Uh, it's, it, things have changed. And I think part of it was economic, that people at the top of... Uh, the food chain who make certain decisions like that saw what was going on. But when we started space, you know, roughly 20 years ago, I remember saying, this is not a niche market. This is mainstream. And I've always said that. I mean, the Silver Snail was about as mainstream as you could get. And our sales were huge. We were selling more product than most bookstores I, you know and i knew that and you know i knew what my sales on the prisoner were which were mainstream numbers so all along i've kept saying no 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 it's mainstream people just don't think of it as that i think the big shift for me uh, happened about 10 years ago it was cosplay culture it was watching that culture evolve which i don't have a lot to do with although every year i will interview people and say you know why did you dress up as X, Y, or Z. And that changed the culture because more and more and more women joined the culture. And then when they joined the culture, their buying habits changed what publishers would print. Now, Marvel and DC, to me, are minor compared to what's going on with Penguin Random House, with all kinds of other publishers, IDW. 
I, you image. Can, you know, image. It's yeah. just, it's completely, look at image. Look, yeah. A book like Sex Criminals, a book like Saga. Saga, what a great thing. And it's still not mainstream culture yet. No. And yet it sells a lot. Walking Dead. We all knew Walking Dead was a great comic, but it was what, 70 issues before the first episode of that show yeah, went yeah, to air? totally, totally. And what's that up to now? Like 150 yeah, something? Yeah, yeah. We're like, I think we're like four seasons in already. Yeah, but, uh, but over 150 issues of the comic. Yeah, and over 150 issues of the comic, so, for sure. you know, and God knows where it will end. So have things changed? Yes, did they really change or did did things just sort of evolve? I mean, you know, Dave Sim got 300 issues of Cerebus out. So God bless Robert Kirkman. Maybe he can get 300 issues of Walking Dead out. But, you know, I just, I always find that to be a tough question because from the get-go, I've said it's mainstream and comics are a medium. So right. if you're a medium and you think you're a medium and then you can do mainstream stuff, then you're just as powerful as movies or television or radio. Do you think this Hollywood attachment is going to is going to go away eventually? Like Yeah, oh of course. Yeah. It's going to be like westerns or whatever. At some point it's going to burn out. You know, when, who knows? And I'm always ahead. Like I thought vampires were burned out and along came twilight. I thought zombies were burned out and then zombie culture continues to evolve. Right. Uh, yeah, I remember when Marvel was doing Marvel zombies and I thought, okay, that's pretty much the end. When Marvel does Marvel zombies, that's the end. Yeah. And then DC did that whole Green Lantern thing, which to me was a riff on the zombies. And then Walking Dead took off on TV and zombies are bigger than ever. Yeah. So, you know... I'm almost inevitably always wrong. <laughs> that would be my thing. Uh, and, and I'm very happy to be wrong. Awesome. Well, thanks, Mark. Where can people find you? Uh, are, do you do social media? Can like, How can people get in touch? Is there anything that you'd like to promote? Nope. I just, you know, read what you love to read. Um, watch what you love to watch. Support. You know, the big thing I would say, if you love a writer on whatever social media you do, talk about their books. And I was never a negative guy. On Prisoners of Gravity, I only put on the books that I liked. I only put on the authors that I liked. I, I have, I'm very uncomfortable talking about work that I don't like. So I tend to not put that work on television. Right. If I like it, it'll get on. And I think people kind of picked up on that. So they go, oh, Prisoners of Gravity has Martha Sukup or, or, you know, Robert J. Sawyer or Neil Gaiman or Alan Moore. These guys must be good. Right. And, and that, to me, becomes a way of branding the material in that way. It's harder now because there's a bunch of producers who work on space and all this stuff gets, you know, muddled up. Yeah. But I think the bottom line for me is if you love something, let people know. Awesome. That, that'll be on my tombstone. That's so good. That's a perfect place to end. Thank you so much for coming in. Uh, I'm so happy that we were able to have this conversation. Thank you so much. This has been Speech Bubble. See you in the future, friends. 